This hearing will come to order. Let me welcome you all to the, uh, today's full Senate Committee, Foreign Relations Committee hearing on nominations. I want to thank Senator Cardin for his work uh, and cooperation in uh, setting up this hearing today and, of course, the work that uh, this committee did yesterday. As I, I think uh, Senator Cardin mentioned to you, the excellent work of the Foreign Relations Committee with, resulting in a, in a very strong bipartisan bill uh, addressing our concern with North Korea. Uh, so we're going to continue that bipartisan efforts today. Uh, we have a panel of five very well-qualified nominees today, and I want to thank each and every one of them and their families for uh, your willingness to serve, your commitment to this country, and for being here today. Uh, I've had the opportunity to meet and speak with, uh, with most of you and privately, uh, privately as well, and I appreciate uh, your time being here today. Uh, and I would ask the nominees to keep their remarks to five, no, more, no more than five minutes. Uh, we're on a little bit of an abbreviated schedule, or I guess interrupted schedule today because of the fact that we have uh, several votes that are going to be occurring within the next uh, 15 to 20 minutes, and so you'll see members come in and out, and I apologize for that as they make the vote. And we're also going to be interrupted by uh, the irascible senator from, uh, from Iowa, uh, who is going to be uh, joining us today uh, and uh, making some comments on, on our, our nominee from Iowa. So I'll be joining that. Uh, senator Cardin, uh, I'll, I'll turn to you as well. Well, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I really want to thank uh, Chairman Gardner for making the arrangements so that we could have five nominees here today. Uh, we want to be able to act in, in an efficient manner in this committee we have under uh, Chairman uh, Corker and Chairman Gardner, and I thank you very much for accommodating uh, these hearings. A lot of the work, just so people understand, a lot of the work on a confirmation process is done before the, 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 ind the individuals appear before our committee, the material they submit to us, their records, etc. And this is an important part of the nominating process. But I just really want to underscore uh, what's, what Chairman Gardner said, and that is thank you. Uh, each one of you has had a long, distinguished career in public service, serving our country, serving your state, and uh, it's an incredible sacrifice to you personally, but also your families. So I, I, I saw some young people walking around outside, so I think we have some family members here. <laughs> Certainly and, weren't senators. That's, that's right. Well, <laughs> So we, we thank the family members for being here because we know this truly is a, a, a family event. Mr. Chairman, what I will do is I'll put my entire opening statement in the record where I say very glowing things about each one of you and your service, uh, which is incredible. I mean, you, you served all over the world. You served in the state legislature. You have devoted yourself to public service. And many of you are career uh, senior uh, diplomats, and uh, now you're going to be taking on critically important positions in East Asia, uh, critically important positions in the economic forum, and in our own hemisphere uh, where we have some significant challenges. So thank you for being willing to do that. Uh, and thank you, Senator Cardin. Turning to our nominees, uh, uh, we'll begin with uh, Karen Brevard-Stewart is our nominee for the Ambassador to the Republic of Marshall Islands. Uh, she is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service and has been since 2013. Uh, I guess she has served as political advisor since 2013 to the Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, she's a two-time ambassador to Laos uh, from 2010 to 2013 and to Belarus from 2006 to 2008. Uh, welcome, Ambassador Stewart. I'm going to introduce all of you and then we'll get to your comments. Uh, Robert Riley is our nominee to the Federated States of Micronesia. Uh, he is a career member of the Foreign Service and since 2013 has served as management counselor at the U.S. Embassy in Jakarta, Indonesia. Welcome, Mr. Riley. Uh, Matt Matthews is up for the rank of ambassador during his, uh, during his tenure of service as United States senior official for the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum. Uh, and uh, since 2015 has served as deputy assistant secretary of state in the Bureau of East Asian 
and Pacific Affairs, and concurrently as a senior official for APEC. Uh, welcome, Mr. Matthews. Um, Ms. Marcella Escobari is our nominee for Assistant Administrator of the United States Agency for International Development. Since 2007, she has served as the Executive Director of the Center for International Development at Harvard University. And of course, uh, we will go to, I'm missing one here. Swati, where did Swati go? Swati Dandekar, uh, we, will be, uh, we will be hearing your testimony as well. I don't have her background here. Senator, Senator Grassley is going to introduce you. So I'm not going to introduce you at all. I thought I was making some comments, but, uh, but he's got them all. Um, but uh, so we will go ahead and start with uh, you, Ms. Stewart. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee. I am deeply honored to appear before you today as the president's nominee to be United States ambassador to the Republic of the Marshall Islands. I am grateful to the president and the secretary for their competence in nominating me for this position. And I am equally grateful to you for, to receive your consideration. With the chairman's permission, I would like to just briefly introduce some of my family who were able to make it here today. Uh, my sister-in-law, Kate Stewart, my niece and her husband, Catherine and Joe Stallings, a very dear friend, Alice Buckhalter. All of them are from Maryland, Senator. And then several friends <laughs> from my church in Norfolk. That was a good call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should point out that Mr. Raleigh was born in, in Baltimore. I, that was also pointed out in the resume. As a, <laughs> any, any other connections, please bring them up. <laughs> As a Foreign Service Officer, I have been privileged to serve in a varied and fascinating mix of assignments, including the honor of serving as U.S. Ambassador to Belarus and to Laos. If confirmed, I will draw on the lessons learned in these assignments and my many years of regional policy experience to advance the United States' strategic interests in the Pacific. The Republic of the Marshall Islands is a key partner in the United States' deepening relationship with the Pacific. Our two nations have a close and special relationship dating back to the end of the Second World War and United States administration of the UN Pacific Islands Trust Territory. In 1983, the Marshall Islands and the United States concluded the Compact of Free Association, which then entered into force in 1986. We thus entered into the new phase of our relationship with the RMI. And this compact, which was amended in 2003 to extend greater economic assistance, now provides the structure for much of our bilateral relationship. The mutual security of our nations is a core feature of this special relationship. Under the compact, the United States has committed to defend the RMI and its people from attack or threats as the United States and its citizens are defended. The United States also enjoys access to Marshallese ports, airports, airspace, a vital asset for our defense and security needs. The RMI hosts the U.S. Army's Ronald Reagan ballistic missile defense test site on Kwajalein Atoll. This is a major U.S. missile testing and also space tracking and operations facility. And under the amended compact, the United States has access to Kwajalein through 2066 with the option to extend until 2086. If confirmed, I will work to maintain the strong relationship between the Kwajalein facility and the Marshall Islands government and to promote its benefits for affiliated Marshallese communities. The United States and the Marshall Islands also have an important economic relationship. To help achieve the amended compact goal of economic self-sufficiency, the United States through the Department of the Interior will provide the government of the RMI with roughly $70 million a year through fiscal year 2023. Approximately 35 million of this is provided in annual grant assistance targeting health, education, public infrastructure, environment, public and private sector capacity development. Another very important aspect of the amended compact is a jointly managed trust fund that will serve as a source of income for the Marshall Islands after the compact's direct grant assistance ends. If confirmed, I will promote outcome-oriented sustainable economic development 
and strongly advocate for the wise and accountable use of our assistance to support Marshallese capacity to build a prosperous and healthy future. Under the amended compact, most citizens of the RMI can live, study, and work in the United States without a visa. The RMI government has an excellent voting record with the United States and the United Nations, sharing our positions on many important issues, including on human rights in Israel. The RMI is also a close ally of the United States in the multilateral climate change negotiations. As one of the nations most vulnerable to the impacts of a rise in sea level, the RMI played a crucial role last December in Paris in furthering our shared goal of ensuring ambitious action by all major greenhouse gas mitigating countries, both developed and developing, in order to reach a historic international agreement. If confirmed, I will continue to work collaboratively with the RMI to tackle environmental challenges. The RMI is a vibrant democracy that conducted another free and fair election just last November and recently installed a new government. In working with this new government, we will continue to look to the RMI as a reliable partner that strongly backs U.S. engagement in the Pacific and supports U.S. strategic priorities around the globe. If confirmed, I will continue the fine work of Ambassador Armbrister by working closely with the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, and the rest of the interagency committee community to strengthen a bilateral relationship based on partnership and mutual respect between the Marshallese and American people. Mr. Chairman, in closing, I would like to emphasize that the Republic of the Marshall Islands was part of our trust territory, but is now our good friend. The people of RMI are woven into the American fabric, serving with distinction and honor in our military and living and working beside us in the United States. The Marshall Islands remains a dependable partner in bolstering security in the Pacific. As the economic center of gravity shifts to the Asia-Pacific region, the importance to U.S. interests of a stable, increasingly prosperous, and democratic Marshall Islands continues to grow. If confirmed, I look forward to working with you in pursuit of that goal. I appreciate this opportunity to appear before you today and am pleased to answer your questions. Thank you, Ambassador Stewart. Thank you very much for your testimony. We'll turn to Mr. Riley. Mr. Riley, again, our nominee to the Federated States of Micronesia. Uh, please proceed with your testimony. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee. I am honored to hear, appear before you today, and I'm grateful to President Obama and Secretary Kerry for their confidence in nominating me to be United States Ambassador to the Federated States of Micronesia, or FSM. If confirmed, I welcome the opportunity to work with you, this committee, and other members of Congress to advance American interests in the Pacific. I am thrilled to be associated again with our embassy in the FSM, as I supported the operations of Embassy Colonia while assigned to our embassy in Manila from 2009 to 2013. And I count myself fortunate to be a member of a select group to have worked with our mission in this beautiful but faraway country. My sense of service growing up in Annapolis, Maryland, was inculcated in me by my late father and namesake, a highly dedicated doctor who devoted himself to his patients and waived his fees for the poor, and by my 90-year-old mother, Fritzi, who raised her four children selflessly while my father worked. She also began her bachelor's degree at age 40, finished her master's at 55, and then worked as a college professor until she was 70. My stepfather, John Kenny, is an active and wonderful man who married my mother when he was 88 and she was 85. My dear, lovely Timmy is here today. She provides loving support and encouragement. One of my two beautiful and talented daughters, Carol, is also present. My other, older daughter, Susan, is a Peace Corps volunteer in China. My very good friend, Buddy Shanks, is also here. The FSM consists of over 600 mountainous islands and low-lying coral atolls spread over one million squares of the Pacific Ocean. It faces inherent challenges to economic development, including susceptibility to natural disasters, 
remoteness from major markets, and limited land resources. The United States and the FSM have enjoyed a close and special relationship for over 65 years. In 1947, the United Nations designated the United States as the administrating authority of the Trust Territory of the Pacific Islands, including what is known today as the FSM. And in 1986, the Compact of Free Association between the FSM and the United States entered into force, ushering a new phase in our bilateral relationship. The Compact, as amended in 2003, provides the framework for much of our bilateral relationship. Under the amended Compact, most citizens of the FSM may live, study, and work in the United States without a visa. In addition, the United States is committed to providing over $107 million per year in direct economic assistance and trust fund contributions through 2023. After U.S. contributions to the trust fund and direct sectoral assistance under the amended compact end in 2023, the FSM will begin to draw distributions from the trust fund. The FSM faces a critical juncture as it shifts from direct financial assistance to the use of trust fund distributions. If confirmed, I will work constructively with the government of the FSM encouraging it to make the structural reforms needed to ensure its sustained development beyond 2023. While U.S. contributions to the trust fund and direct economic assistance under the amended compact will end in 2023, the amended compact itself does not expire. Unless otherwise stated, the amended compact will remain in effect until terminated according to its terms. If confirmed, I will do my best to reassure the people of the FSM that the United States remains committed to assisting the FSM as, as it faces the challenges of the coming decades. The FSM is an important partner in our Pacific engagement. The mutual security of our nations is an underlying element of our special relationship. The FSM has no military of its own. Under the amended compact, the United States is committed to defending Micronesia and its people from attack or threats as the United States and its citizens are defended. If confirmed, I will work closely with the government of FSM to highlight our strong support for regional security. The importance of our strong relationship with the FSM extends beyond defense considerations. The FSM is a loyal friend and ally in many other ways. For example, the FSM votes with the United States at the United Nations over 90% of the time. Our people-to-people -people ties also continue to grow. There are 47 Peace Corps volunteers currently serving in the FSM. If confirmed, I will draw on my Peace Corps experience to work with the Peace Corps and the government of the FSM to enhance the su success of this valuable program. Finally, the FSM is among the small island nations already impacted by climate change. If confirmed, I will support efforts by the Department of Interior and other federal agencies to further assist the FSM in adapting to the impacts of climate change, including by integrating climate change adaptation considerations into long-term planning. In closing, I can think of no greater honor or opportunity than to lead the U.S. mission in the FSM and work with our valued Micronesian friends on these and other important issues. It is a time of renewed focus on our role in the Pacific, and I'm excited to be part of it. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you, and I'm happy to answer your questions. Thank you, Mr. Riley, and I see Senator Grassley has arrived at the hearing. Now, I will, uh, Ms. Dandekar, warn you that perhaps the only way to outdo the flattery of the senator from Maryland uh, is you may or may not want to mention ethanol after your remarks <laughs> from Senator Grassley. Okay. Uh, but with that, we'll turn to Senator Grassley for the introduction of uh, Ms. Dandekar, our nominee to be United States Director of the Asian Development Bank. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Ranking Member Cardin. Uh, my short statement won't give uh, enough credit to her 
uh, devotion to public service. I want to emphasize that, but I still want to say these few words anyway. Uh, thank you for allowing me to introduce to the committee Ms. Swati Dandekar and her husband Arvind Dandekar. Now, I happen to have known her and her husband personally for many years. Uh, Swati immigrated to the United States from India in 1973, earned her bachelor's degree from Nagpur University, and a postgraduate diploma from Bombay University, India. Swati began her public service as a member of Lynn Marr School Board, 1996, and then served uh, there until she was elected to the Iowa House of Representatives in 2002. With her election to the Iowa House of Representatives, she became the first Indian-born American to hold a state legislative position. She served on the Appropriations Committee, Economic Growth and Economic Development Appropriations Subcommittees, as well as the Education and Transportation Committees there in the Iowa House. She was also appointed by Vision Iowa Board, uh, then Governor Vilsack, now our Secretary of Agriculture. This board awarded communities across Iowa with grants and funding for community and economic development projects. In 2000. Swati was elected to the Iowa Senate, where she became the first Democratic woman to chair the Senate Commerce Committee. In 2011, uh, she was elected president of the National Foundation of Women Legislators, where her national platform consisted of uh, STEM education and an increased application of broadband communication for economic growth. Republican Governor Brand said appointed Swati to the Iowa Utilities Board as, as its Democratic member in 2011, where she served until 2013. Um, Swati has led numerous trade and education missions to India. She was honored as the India Abroad Person of the Year 2002 and the Asia Pacific American Person of the Year uh, 2008. I'm pleased that Swati has been called by the President to serve again as U.S. Executive Director uh, for the Asian Development Bank. I'm confident that she will represent the United States well in that position, as she has done uh, uh, very well in all of her other positions of public service. So I thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the courtesy you've given me to allow to introduce Swati to this committee. And I want you to know that I fully support her nomination, and I hope the committee will see fit to vote her out for Senate consideration. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator Grassley. Thank you for joining the Foreign Relations Committee today and for that uh, gracious introduction. Uh, Ms. Swati, Ms. Nandekar, if you would like to proceed with your uh, testimony uh, following that remark, uh, introduction, it'd be great. Thanks. Thank you. Um, thank you, Senator Grassley, for your kind um, comments, I'm really honored to say that um, we are family friends. <laughs> Thank you. They are part of my Americ American family in Iowa. Chairman Gardner. Let me also thank Senator Grassley for being here. I, he, I, he has incredible responsibilities in the United States Senate and is one of the, our great members. And his uh, introduction here means a great deal. And I thank you very much for taking the time. Thanks. Thank you. Chairman Gardner, Ranking Member uh, Cardin, and distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. 
I am honored to have been nominated by President Obama to be the next United States Executive Director with the rank of Ambassador to the Asian Development Bank. I came to United States as an immigrant in 1973 when I married my husband of 43 years, Arvind Dandekar, who is here today. He's Arvind is president of FastTech International, a software development company. Arvind has always been supportive of my public service. We have two sons. Our older son, Ajay, and his wife, Allison, live in Seattle, Washington. Both Ajay and Allison are medical doctors. They have two sons, Evan, nine years old, and William, five years. Our younger son, Govind, and his wife, Shanida, live in Vancouver, Canada. Govind is an economist and computer scientist, and Shanida is a lawyer. They have two daughters, Ayana, two years, and Ayla, one month. Our sons and their families were not able to be here today. During my nine years in Iowa House and Senate, from 2003 until 2011, I had chance to work at the state level. Additionally, during my two years as Commissioner of Iowa Utilities Board, I gained national level experience. I'm excited by the potential opportunity to work internationally as the US Executive Director of Asian Development Bank. As a legislator, I always work with both sides of the aisle to develop consensus positions that were acceptable to all interested parties. Senator Joni Ernst was my colleague in the Iowa Senate, and we became friends. I served as Economic Development Budget Chair in the Iowa House and Commerce Committee Chair in Iowa Senate. I have gained insight in the state finances and budgets in these assignments. I also have extensive experience serving on a variety of boards in Iowa, such as Linmar School Board, Vision Iowa Board, Iowa Values Fund, Iowa Power Fund, and Iowa Utilities Board. These experiences have provided me with first-hand look at the transformative power of appropriate use of development funds. My extensive background in managing project, projects and cultivating partnerships will help me to carry out the responsibilities of the US Ex Executive Director at ADB, which is dedicated to reducing poverty in Asia-Pacific region through sustainable and inclusive economic growth, investment in capital, human capital, and good governance. If confirmed, my first priority will be to advance US policy interest at the ADB. Additionally, I, look, I will work to ensure that the US Commerce Department and other entities that publicize opportunities for US businesses to compete for business overseas include information on how to compete for contracts from the ADB. Strengthen outreach and engagement with NGOs, the non-governmental organizations, communities, and citizens to establish direct feedback channels for information on implementation status of ADB projects. 
modernize the ADB communications, such as the bank's website, to increase transparency and enhance marketability of the ADB. Encourage ADB's efforts to create opportunity for women and girls across Asia for its own female staff. Maintain communication with Congress and advocate for ADB's continued applied, continued application of high social, environmental, and fiduciary standards, including promoting their adoption by new multilateral institutions in Asia. My upbringing in India provides me with an excellent understanding of Asian culture. In addition to English and Hindi, I am fluent in Gujarati and Marathi. I also have working knowledge in Urdu, Punjabi, and Bengali languages. My language skills and cultural awareness will position me well to address challenges facing the ADB. If confirmed, I look forward to representing the United States at the ADB and ensuring that our country's priority initiatives are advanced. It is my distinct honor to appear before you, and I sincerely appreciate the opportunity to be here today. I look forward to answering any questions you have. Thank you. Thank you very much. And as you can tell by the bells, we have started uh, a yes. vote. So Senator Cardin will be voting coming back, and then I will be heading to the floor as well. We'll do that a couple times, most likely, during the hearing. We'll turn now to uh, thank you, Ms. Dandekar, for your, your testimony. Turn now to Mr. Matthews. Matt Matthews, uh, up for the rank of ambassador during his, uh, this uh, hearing today. I look forward to your testimony. Thank you. Uh, good morning, Mr. Chairman. I'm happy to be here today with my wife, Rachel. My two children, Daniel and Kristen, are grown and live and work in Portland, Oregon, and Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, so they weren't able to join me today. Too bad Senator Cardin is here. I could tell him that my son graduated from the University of Maryland Dental School. <laughs> Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, I am honored to appear before you today as the President's nominee to serve as the senior official for APEC with the rank of ambassador. I appreciate the confidence that President Obama and Secretary Kerry have shown in me, and if confirmed, I look forward to working with you to advance U.S. economic interests to the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum as we strive to foster a rules-based economic system in the Asia-Pacific region that supports prosperity abroad and jobs here at home. APEC is the premier economic organization in the Asia-Pacific region and a key venue for engaging the most economically dynamic region in the world. APEC's 21 members span both sides of the Pacific and account for over half the global economy. They purchase 62% of our goods exports and comprise a market of 2.7 billion consumers. Through APEC, the United States works with our partners to tackle a wide range of issues critical to long-term prosperity across the Pacific Rim. For over 25 years, APEC has steadily advanced a vision of growth and integration within Asia and across the Pacific. The United States works within APEC to open markets in the Asia-Pacific region and connect them to U.S. exporters. APEC's focus includes eliminating barriers to trade and investment and creating better environments for our companies to do business overseas. APEC has played and will continue to play a central role in enabling agreements like the Trans-Pacific Partnership and those of the World Trade Organization by helping economies envision and prepare for a high standard rules-based economic system throughout the Asia Pacific. Agreements like these can deepen America's economic ties to the region and build a more level economic playing field 
that will help Americans to compete successfully. The economies of the Asia-Pacific region have benefited greatly over the past half century from progressively freer and more open trade and investment. The vast majority of the region's citizens live better lives because of the region's economic integration. But disruptions in the financial markets, natural disasters in the region, rising inequality in many regional economies, and raising long-term potential growth are key challenges. From our point of view, APEC is a key part of the solution, and the United States and other APEC members recognize that just as important to ensuring meaningful prosperity is promoting economic growth that is sustainable and benefits all of our citizens. If confirmed, I will work with Congress, the business community, and my colleagues in the executive branch through APEC to expand and sustain economic growth at home and abroad and to promote new opportunities for our exporters overseas. If confirmed, I will build on my experience in the Asia Pacific to advance our economic interest. Most recently, I served as the foreign policy advisor to the commander of the US Pacific Command, Admiral Sam Locklear, but I've spent most of my 30-year career in the Foreign Service primarily handling trade and economic issues at our embassies and posts overseas. In particular, my time working on macroeconomic reform and financial market access issues during multiple tours in China and Taiwan and on bilateral FTAs in the region has provided me with a good foundation of knowledge of both the region and the issues that the United States is working to address through APEC. Mr. Chairman, it would be a great privilege to serve my country as the U.S. senior official to APEC with the rank of ambassador. The Asia-Pacific region represents the future of the global economy, and we can play a key role in shaping and sustaining our vision for the region through APEC. I look forward to helping the United States work through APEC to promote growth and job creation in the Asia-Pacific for American businesses and citizens. Thank you for your consideration of my nomination. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Matthews, uh, for your testimony. Ms. Escobari is our nominee for Assistant Administrator of the United States Agency for International Development. Uh, welcome, and please proceed. Chairman Gardner, thank you for considering my nomination and for the opportunity to testify before you today. It's an honor to be nominated by President Obama to serve as Assistant Administrator for the Bureau for Latin America and the Caribbean at USAID. I've had a chance to meet with people from USAID and, um, and those working in this committee, and I've been impressed by their deep knowledge and, uh, and commitment. My own um, passion for development comes from growing up in Bolivia, one of the poorest countries in the hemisphere, a daughter of uh, two pediatricians who spend most of their life working in public hospitals. I, um, I, um, I mean, they brought home the joys of making a difference one child at a time. Uh, but also the frustrations of seeing children dying more from poverty than disease. I recall telling my parents that I wanted to become a doctor like them, and them counseling me that I should instead focus on the more structural issues that keep people in poverty instead of its symptoms. At the time, I didn't quite understand what they meant, and it for sure sounded less fun than being a doctor. Um, but I know that my parents who are watching um, from afar today are proud to see me here trying to do just that. I, uh, I want to thank them, my husband, Baron, and our sons, Nico and Lucas, uh, and our friends and families whose uh, uh, unwavering support and love are the reason that I can sit before you today. Throughout my career, I've had a chance to see international development from different perspectives. As an investment banker working in Latin America, I saw the win-win opportunities of foreign direct investment and the transfer of, of knowledge across borders. As a consultant working in Africa and the Americas, I saw the importance of partnership across sectors. 
and most recently as executive director of the Center for International Development at Harvard, I've uh, got a chance to work on ideas of how to spur economic growth that can be more inclusive and bring evidence to decision making. These experiences have taught me lessons that I hope to bring uh, to this job if confirmed. First, I believe that there are no silver bullets. Solving poverty is probably among the most complex challenges of our times. Making progress requires a long list of ingredients, from access to quality schooling, to jobs that provide substance and dignity, and things we can't touch, like a sense of safety and the rule of law. The list continues, but we have learned that the difficult truth that a one-size-fits-all approach will just not work. Second, that the answers to this complexity must be grounded in evidence. Effective policy requires a relentless, data-driven approach to learning. And third, I've learned the importance of partnership. I worked in a project in Rwanda to help reconstruct the economy after the genocide. It focused on moving the coffee sector from green, low-value coffee to one that could be sourced by Starbucks. Success depended on entrepreneurs willing to venture into export markets, on a government that could provide widespread training to farmers, and, a USA, and a USAID providing a loan guarantee to establish the first washing station. This partnership resulted in tripling of incomes of the poorest farmers in Rwanda. And uh, these outcomes would not have been possible without multiple actors working together on a unified strategy. Finally, I understand that economic growth alone is not enough. Development requires strong and transparent institutions that provide basic services and are accountable to its citizens. It is an important time for Latin America and the Caribbean. There are winds of change that are bringing hope to millions of people. Historic elections have taken place in Venezuela and Argentina, and judicial systems are holding the most powerful accountable in countries like Brazil and Guatemala. There's a peace accord on the table in Colombia that might bring an end to a brutal 50-year-old war. But it's also a time of fragility. Winds of change can quickly turn to destruct destructive storms, and so we must continue to work skillfully with our partners in the region to ensure that these gains are sustained. Our mission is shared in every sense, not just with the American people as an extension of their will and with the burden and privilege of their trust, but also with our neighbors. I was born in Bolivia, but, the circum but circumstances gave me the incredible chance to become a citizen of this great country. I fell in love with a great man, but I was also drawn to the United States' core values its belief in every individual's intrinsic dignity, in our right to pursue our own happiness and prosperity in an environment where our freedoms are protected and rules apply equally to everyone. I believe that these values are a source of our nation's strength and they might, must be reflected in our foreign policy. If confirmed, it would be an honor to give back to a country that has given me so much and to advance these values as Assistant Administrator for the Bureau for Latin America and the Caribbean at USAID. Thank you. Well, once again, thank all five of you. As you've noticed, uh, Senator Gardner and I have rotated because there's a vote on the floor of the United States Senate, and we wanted to keep this hearing going. So I, uh, and I apologize for the walking out. I, w I have cast my vote now. He's going over to do his vote, and he will be returning shortly. But once again, thank you all uh, for, your, for your service. Uh, let me, if I might, uh, ask questions first, starting with Micronesia and with Marshall Owens. You know, both are very much uh, um, subject to uh, the direct impact of climate change. They see it. 
Uh, Marshall Islands was very helpful to us in Paris, as you pointed out. Uh, Micronesia is a great friend with us in the United Nations, as, as you pointed out. Uh, in uh, both of those countries, uh, we, we have um, issues, uh, Marshall Islands very important on maritime sec uh, security issues, which is um, uh, an area that is growing in uh, tension in the region. We have certain commitments. Uh, the uh, development assistance programs uh, and the compact uh, tails off over a number of years in both of these countries. The conditions for Micronesia complying with the compact uh, has been difficult, denying them some infrastructure funds. So I would welcome both of your views as to how you see us building on our traditional relationships uh, with these two uh, partner countries as we deal with international global issues from maritime security uh, to climate change, to other issues uh, in, in the United Nations, but also how you see the compact emerging with the United States assistance uh, uh, in during your terms as uh, ambassadors. Ambassador Stewart, we'll start with you. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, that you have addressed a broad set of issues that we that are will be the future work for myself if confirmed in the Marshall Islands. Um, I think, and first of all, I would like to say that in addressing the compact and the future of the assistance, uh, it would be my goal if confirmed to work with the Marshallese to for the goal of a more sustainable economic development. In other words, to as much as possible shift the resources into outcome-oriented uh, programmatic developments that would allow the marshals to become uh, ready to become self-sufficient as the grant assistance comes to an end in 2023. At the same time, the marshals are fortunate in having uh, have a fairly strong start on their trust fund, which will provide an alternate source of income after the uh, grant assistance ends. In the area of climate change, as you have noted, Senator, uh, they worked with us very well in Paris, and I imagine we will continue to be close partners in the international negotiations. In terms of their own challenges, uh, in the compact assistance, we are now moving to include resilience and adaptation measures in all of the projects so that the, what, what gets built there is prepared for some of the effects of climate change. And also we have continuing programs and disaster assistance and preparedness, better even to prepare for, for droughts and other uh, severe weather elements. Um, and finally, in maritime security, uh, as we uh, already have uh, shiprider agreements with, these, with the Marshall Islands, um, but I think that we continue to work with them in how to best preserve, conserve maritime resources and uh, if necessary, defend those areas. Great. Thank you, sir. Mr. Raleigh, you, uh, your background in Peace Corps will serve you well here um, in, in Micronesia. You understand how important the economic development, infrastructure development is to the country's future, and yet they've been very slow in moving forward on the conditions of the compact, which is jeopardizes their ability to improve the infrastructure of their country which is their economic, part of their economic future. How do you see your role in trying to uh, expedite um, the uh, growth, economic growth, infrastructure growth in Micronesia in partnership with the United States? 
Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, <clears throat> there are a lot of similarities between the Marshall Islands and the Federated States of Micronesia. Uh, I think one key difference that you identified was the fact is the fact that uh, the uh, the trust fund uh, is not fully funded in Micronesia as it is in the Marshalls, uh, and so the uh, th there and there is a lack of economic development in Micronesia. So. I will be looking very closely at uh, the situation, uh, if confirmed, on the ground, and, and see where we might encourage private sector development, which I think is a key area in Micronesia. There's a, there's a, uh, a, a very much a lack of private sector development in Micronesia at the present time. And I'm considering uh, looking to U.S. business uh, as partners in that effort. Uh, I think there are opportunities in tourism, some niche tourism in particular. Uh, there are opportunities in small business, uh, small franchises, Starbucks and so forth. And there's even a possibility uh, of establishing call centers there. They occupy kind of a unique place in the globe between the Philippines and the US and India. And uh, that might be a possibility. So those are some things I'm, I'm thinking about and, look, and, and uh, will be considering when I, when I arrive in Micronesia have confirmed. Well, I appreciate that answer. The call center issue is going to get some of our attention because right. we think you should be talking to someone in this country when you call for help. <laughs> so, but, but I understand what you're saying, and we, um, we these would be American call center companies. I'd be okay. <laughs> Do the best we can there. Uh, let, let me if I, let me switch because this is a large panel, and I want to give everybody an opportunity um, with Ms. Daniker and Mr. Matthews. Uh, and both, I want to ask you questions related to China. Uh, Staniker, uh, China's established the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, and the, the, it raises questions as to how it impacts uh, the, the finance institutions in Asia uh, with U.S. Uh, participation uh, limited in how China is proceeding today. I would welcome your thoughts as to how you see uh, the role within the Asian Development Bank in dealing with the efforts by China to divert from the traditional uh, development banks to one in which it has more influence on. Thank you for your um, question, Senator. Um, Yes, AIIB is um, a new bank, and uh, what they have said that they will work with uh, multinational, the MDBs. That's what they have said. And I, the requirement for infrastructure in Asia is so vast that uh, AIIB, when they work with multi um, MDBs, it will be good, um, good for uh, us and for Asian, I mean, for Asian Development Bank. The reason is uh, AIIB said that they will work with multi-MDBs um, because um, that's how they're going to work with to get the good governance. If, conf if confirmed, I will encourage ADB to co-finance with AIIB. The reason is that this way we can um, make sure that there is transparency and there is good governance with AIIB. 
I would just caution. I look. I, I I don't think any of us disagree that the more players in the field, it adds uh, more flexibility for how to deal with economic development. So I, I don't think we per se are concerned about China's uh, trying to, uh, to develop a development bank. But I do question whether China always does what it says and whether their motives are always as pure as, 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 uh, as what we're trying to do in international development, particularly in our rebalance to Asia. So um, I, I think your answer is, uh, is I agree with. We want to engage, but I would just caution that they may, in some instances, trying to undermine uh, the more traditional development opportunities. Um, thank you, um, Senator, for your comment. And I agree um, that th there is a concern. But I think when AIIB will work with um, MDBs, uh, we will be able to make sure that they have a high standards, good governance, good transparency. Uh, by working with them, we will raise their standards too. So I completely agree with you regarding the concerns. But when they work with MDBs, it will really help to make sure that they are doing what they say they will be doing. I appreciate that. When I, when I get to Ms. Escobari, I'm going to be focusing on the corruption issue and good governance issue, but it's going to affect every one of your portfolios. And you're going to be hearing from uh, not only me, but uh, this committee uh, as to how we are going to um, assist you in, um, in in, in your work on developing good governance as a condition uh, to programs that you want us to participate with in any other country in the world. So we're going to be insisting upon the good governance, anti-corruption issues. Mr. Matthews, uh, the fact that China's economy has cooled down considerably, oil prices, of course, are different. How does that affect uh, the work of, of APEC? Thank you, Senator. I'd say that it raises um, the general broad problem that we're in a period of mediocre economic growth. And in APEC, we're looking across the spectrum of how we can operate to improve our economic performance and find new sources of growth, whether it's through the economic architecture and trade. In APEC this year, we're initiating work on services trade. It's a great start. It'll take us some time. but. Uh, by opening up services trade among our APEC members, we'll be expanding the potential for growth. In structural reform, we look uh, at behind the barrier, uh, behind the border barriers to growth. We're trying to remove red tape. We're trying to eliminate unnecessary uh, bureaucratic processing to reduce costs for firms and to speed up their opportunities to take advantage of international trade. Uh, and third area where we work in APEC to deal with this slower growth environment is improving uh, human capital. You'll see it in the work that we're doing, particularly with regard uh, to women. This year, we're gonna be launching work on STEM education for women, trying to make sure we reduce the gap and get more women and girls involved in science and technological uh, education to ensure that they're getting the skills necessary to activate, actively work and participate in our economies and bring greater growth potential by just raising overall human capital development. I'd say those three core areas uh, are ways in which we can engage effectively to help improve the potential for growth of our APEC uh, economies. Well, I, thank you for that. I, I, China, I think, presents opportunities for us. I'm not, not opposed to China's growth. I'd rather see them also invest in the same areas you just talked about 
uh, those of us who have visited China uh, recognize that they have held back their own growth by how they've denied the full opportunities to their people. And I think some of the points that you're referring to will provide a more stable environment uh, for, for APEX. I appreciate that answer. Mrs. Escobari, I want to get to one of my favorite subjects. Uh, recently was in Central America. Uh, strongly support the President's initiatives in Central America, but I don't think it's enough. Uh, the, the, uh, the programs seem to be more geared towards the military security front or the police security front rather than dealing with developing safety in communities for full potential of their population. And the corruption issue, the impunity issue, is, is, uh, is horrible. So tell me uh, how you are going to make uh, anti-corruption, good governance, your top priority in the work that you're going to do and how you're going to keep us informed of the progress you're making and the obstacles that you confront in State Department so that we can remove those obstacles. Thank you, Senator, for the question. Um, indeed, Central America is a priority and um, and it's a, it's a key moment for the U.S. government to, to, to invest in that region. I mean, the immigration crisis and the instability, as you said, and I think part of it is about, you know, people leave their countries because of fear and hope, and, and part of it is bringing hope closer to home. But both stability and economic development, which are key parts of the Alliance for Progress in the region, are not enough without um, dealing with governance and creating good institutions. Um, I think we're all optimistic on the, the role that CSIG has had in the region in combating impunity. And this was a pretty small agency that had, uh, you know, important effects through time. And I know that Honduras also wants to embrace a similar model that we are supporting. Um, so I think that the three-pronged approach of you got to create jobs, which is, I think, uh, important and crucial, and you can be successful by taking a more regional approach, dealing with the safety issues, and each, the safety issue is very different in every country. There's not a one-size-fits-all approach there. Um, and working at the community level and understanding the root causes of each of the problems is key. But, but as you say, none of that is sustainable without, uh, without a focus on strengthening these institutions. And I think that should be a priority. And I will maintain you informed and seek your counsel. Thank you. Uh, you know, I, uh, admire Administrator Shaw, Administrator Smith's initiatives at USAID to find ways to leverage a relatively small amount of assistance to bring about significant change. And we've been successful in doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, I, 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 usually, I go back, Mr. Chairman, to uh, pres uh, uh, President Bush's initiative on PEPFAR and what that was a consequential change globally on our fight against AIDS. We need similar creative thoughts in dealing with hunger, with the, and we, we have a, an initiative that we are doing at USAID with that. Well, we need a consequential effort to deal with the gang violence in Central America. But we also need to get a clear message out on anti-corruption, that it's going to be tough love. Mm -hmm. We're not going to provide funds that can fuel corrupt regimes. Mm -hmm. uh, in Central America, we have democratic regimes, uh, but they can't, they have a hard time dealing with the extortion that gangs do in order to um, uh, uh, carry out their illegal activities. 
So we need you laser-focused as to how U.S. policy can have a more effective way of reducing uh, anti-corruption strategies in the countries in which we are operating in. And I see that you fully support that. <laughs> yes, I do support that. Um, I think, uh, um, first, I think those commitments are part of this agreement and uh, new funds to the region that uh, local governments need to be committed to, to these issues and show progress in them. I also uh, think that, you know, corruption is extremely corrosive for, for development. It creates, you know, a huge tax and, and we combat it directly and we also combat it. The absence of corruption is, you know, public services that work. And when we focus on, uh, on, uh, on making sure that a system, you know, health system works, we are making sure that, uh, that we're, you know, combating corruption too. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Appreciate all of your service. Thank you, Senator Cardin. And uh, just a, a quick question to, to all of you. Uh, we've spent a lot of time in this committee talking about the rebalance, talking about the pivot, talking about uh, Asia rebalance. Uh, and uh, we've talked about how it can't just be a military rebalance with uh, personnel and equipment, but it has to be a diplomatic, it has to be an economic, it has to be um, all of the above when it comes to making sure that we're providing leadership and showing uh, opportunities for uh, the rebalance to succeed. So I guess I would just, uh, I'll start with uh, Ms. Dandekar, in terms of what you see our success with the Asia rebalance, how we are proceeding with it, how successful we have been, and what we need to do to truly uh, continue making the rebalance effective. Thank you, um, Senator. Uh, I think it is important for ADB to be part of um, rebalancing, making sure that we have um, good governance, uh, especially when it comes to economic development and uh, infrastructure. Uh, also have good communications with the region, like you mentioned, and I do. When I did talk about those uh, issues in my opening statement. Uh, one of the things I have found out it's important for us um, to have good governance, um, meet with uh, the NGOs, the non-governmental organizations. They are the ones who are going to tell, uh, say that what we are doing at ADB is the right thing. It also gives us um, good um, PR from, uh, for the public to know that we are working on uh, infrastructure, we are working on economic development, we are working on education, and it's um, because of ADB's um, partnership, those things are happening. Ms. Uh, Ambassador Stewart, on the issue of the rebalance and where we are and how we can be successful and where we've not uh, lived up to what we should be doing. Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, with my many years of serving in Southeast uh, Asia and Asia, South Asia, um, this is all, uh, a priority given to Asia Pacific is a great interest to me. I think in the particular area of the Marshall Islands uh, that we, it demonstrates, our relationship there demonstrates three of the key themes of, of an emphasis and a, and a uh, rebalancing towards Asia Pacific. We have first the uh, very strong uh, defense and mutual security relationship, the access that we have to facilities there to, and our responsibilities for defense. But we have also the important uh, factor of the economic development and how we will work together um, 
to pick up that area more to, met, to work on the theme of prosperity, mutual prosperity for uh, the Marshall Islands. And I would say that's a broader theme for Asia Pacific in general, that that's what we hope to achieve here. And then thirdly, the people-to-people -people relationship, which I think um, is, should be emphasized also, and which in the case of the Marshall Islands, we have free travel back and forth and we can promote that. But I think, again, that would be a theme that I would see throughout the Asia Pacific. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Mr. Riley. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. As in all things, uh, there are many similarities between the Marshall Islands and FSM. Uh, I would add that um, the FSM is geopolitically very important. Uh, it occupies a million square miles in the middle of the Pacific between us and China. Uh, and uh, I think the, that PACOM is very much aware of, of its geopolitical importance and is active in a number of areas in FSM as I think also in Marshall Islands. Um, the, the Coast Guard is also active there. There are a number of maritime initiatives there. Uh, and uh, the defense provisions in the compact are kind of a ready-built uh, rebalance, if you will, in that uh, we have the full responsibility and authority for all defense matters there, as well as uh, the right of strategic denial to any third-party military. And uh, I think these are very important provisions in the compact that are good for their defense and for ours. Uh, as far as the economics are concerned, uh, that's something that's kind of uh, built into the end of the compact in the FSM. We're going to have to do a lot to make sure that the economy is ready for 2023. And uh, if confirmed, that will be one of my major uh, priorities. Thank you. Mr. Matthews. Mr. Chairman, um, for the Asia rebalance, three core areas, of course, are on the diplomatic side, sustaining and strengthening our traditional alliance relationships while building out partnerships with uh, other key players for us, like Singapore, New Zealand, Vietnam, uh, I think has gone very well uh, over the past few years. Uh, on the military force reposturing, as you know, the PACOM has, I think, completed uh, a very effective uh, restructuring, and they've been working assiduously to make sure that they have the most efficient uh, uh, downlay of their forces across the Pacific in a way that strengthens our security, and I think they've been successful in that. And the third uh, element, of course, is on the economic side, where I now have some responsibilities, and APEC has been working consistently, and uh, we're redoubling our efforts to do so, to ensure that we have that open, transparent, rules-based economic system that supports our market economies and that sustains new opportunities for our businesses. I would say that the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which grew out of APEC, of course, it's a separate uh, negotiating undertaking, but shares those same values, is a perfect expression of the goals that we seek to ensure are inculcated in the structure of the economic arrangements in East Asia Pacific. And uh, if we can get it to ratification this year, that will be a permanent stamp of American leadership in the region. Yeah, from a resource point of view, your experience as uh, Deputy Under Assistant Secretary of State in the, the Bureau of East Asia Pacific, are we, are we redirecting resources in, to an adequate point uh, for that bureau? Because I know it had been actually one of the lower resourced bureaus. I think the East Asia Pacific Bureau would always appreciate more resources. <laughs> and I could put that vote in for uh, Assistant Secretary Danny Russell, but I do believe that we are 
uh, making best efforts with the resources that we've got to do all that we can to pursue those goals, and I think we are doing them fairly effectively. Additional resources uh, for development projects in the Pacific would be appreciated. Um, I would say that uh, there are a number of areas where uh, if we have adequate uh, ESF funding, um, there are significant things we can accomplish in helping develop the capabilities of these economies and making sure uh, that they are active and effective partakers in an open market economy. Thank you. Mrs. Escobari, would you like to address the question on the issue of rebalance? Uh, well, my, uh, my area of expertise right. is around Latin America. Right, understand, understand. That's why I didn't, uh, didn't expect you to answer, but I <laughs> want to give you the chance if you wanted to add something to it. Um, Ms. Dedeker, the, the, the ADB with the, the IIB, I, AIIB, uh, is there anything that ADB should be doing, any policies that it should be pursuing or perhaps the Senate needs to be addressing uh, when it comes to the experience of the AIIB to make sure that we are competitive, that we're providing leadership and not, uh, not taken off the scene? Um, um Thank you, Senator. I had talked about a few things uh, with uh, Senator Cardin before you came. Uh, AIIB is a new bank, and uh, right as you know, that there's so much of um, need, uh, the vast need for infrastructure in Asia. And at this moment, AIIB has said that I'm aware of that they will work with, with MDBs. And Asian Development Bank will be one of them. And one of the reasons um, we should co-finance with them, because I think that we can say, and uh, MDBs can say, that we have to have higher standards, good governance, and transparency. And um, going back to my opening statement, I will um, work with uh, Congress and, and with Treasury to make, especially take input from you if you have any concerns regarding how we should handle it and what should we do. I, I will keep the communications open if um, confirmed as an executive uh, director of Asian Development Bank. I, I will really appreciate that. Very good. Well, thank you. Uh, and uh, I want to thank all of the witnesses for appearing today. Thank you to Senator Carter for joining us. Uh, thank you for your testimony, your family's uh, travel. Uh, welcome again to the committee, and thank you for being here. Uh, for the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business next Monday, February 15, 2016, including for members to submit questions for the record. Uh, we ask the witnesses to respond as promptly as possible to those questions, and your responses will, of course, be made a part of the record. Uh, with the thanks of the committee, this hearing is now adjourned.